Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. For the first time in a long, long time, I'm actually worried about inflation. Inflation. It's a term that strikes fear from Wall Street to Main Street. Rising prices squeeze business profits, weaken consumer spending power, and shrink retiree savings. No one wants inflation to soar. Making sure it doesn't has long been a top priority of the U.S. Federal Reserve. Stocks ended the day lower Wednesday after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the third time this year. Today, the Federal Reserve raised a key interest rate a quarter of a point. The chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, announced a quarter point interest rate hike today. Three years ago, the committee came to the view that the best way to achieve our mandate was to gradually move interest rates back to levels that are more normal in a healthy economy. As economies grow, prices will inevitably rise, but they shouldn't skyrocket. Since the 1980s, the Fed has targeted an inflation rate of around 2%, a level consistent with both price stability and healthy economic growth. No more. The Federal Open Market Committee voted unanimously to change the long-run goals for the Federal Reserve. Also, the monetary policy strategy for the Federal Reserve. At the end of August, U.S. Fed Chair Jerome Powell announced that the world's most influential central bank will no longer work to keep inflation below 2% at all times. Instead, it will aim for a 2% average rate over time. Because the economy is always evolving, the FOMC's strategy for achieving its goals, our policy framework, must adapt to meet the new challenges that arise. In other words, The Fed is now willing to tolerate periods of faster price gains in the name of stronger demand and job growth. As we heard repeatedly in our Fed Listens events, the robust job market was delivering life-changing gains for many individuals, families, and communities, particularly at the lower end of the income spectrum. After over a generation of low inflation, could the Fed's policy shift, together with America's massive debts, create an inflationary tinderbox? Or has the economy changed so much that inflation no longer poses a serious threat? Hello, Claudia. Hello. Claudia Sam joins us to discuss. Hi, Hi. Claudia. It's Elmira. Hi, Elmira. How are you doing this morning? I'm wonderful. How are you? Pretty good. It's a Monday. Claudia is the Director of Macroeconomic Policy at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Previously, she was a section chief at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. So with that, shall we get started? Yeah, I'm ready to go. Super. Claudia, I want to start out with a bit of history. What did America's financial situation look like prior to the creation of the Federal Reserve? It was a mess. So there were repeated financial crises. They were often tied to, was there a drought or a flood? Because the United States at that time had a very heavy base of its economy and agriculture. And a downside of not having a central bank was that in these crises, there was often bank failures. And that meant that people lost their savings. And that obviously is problematic. If you've been putting money aside and all of a sudden it's gone. And where there was some kind of support, it was coming from wealthy financiers like J.P. Morgan, the man, in those periods would step in and in some cases 
give businesses, give banks the money they needed to get through a crisis. Early attempts to create a U.S. central bank were frustrated by politics. Americans didn't want to implement a centralized British-style system. But this led to significant financial instability. The bank panic of 1907, which threatened to cause a full economic crash and depression, finally gave advocates of a central bank the upper hand. The reform movement got in place and said, we need a central bank. There were other countries that had them. The Bank of England started a long time ago. And so it was known that this could be really helpful. So the Federal Reserve was born out of crisis. It has been shrouded in secrecy since the very start. So one of my favorite stories about the birth of the Federal Reserve is in 1910, there was a small group of men that met at the Jekyll Island Club that was off on an island off of Georgia, and they didn't tell people they were going there to start drafting up what later became the Federal Reserve Act. They told everybody, we're going on a duck hunt. Three years after this supposed duck hunt, on December 23, 1913, President Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act into law, and the Fed was born. And what were the Fed's responsibilities when it was first created? So in the creation of the Federal Reserve, its most important duty, and to this day it's the Fed's most important duty, is to be what we call the lender of last resort. So what that means is in a financial crisis, the Federal Reserve will step in and it will lend money. So it has always focused on lending money to institutions, particularly banks, back in its beginning, that were having, they had a shortage of cash, right? So the financial crisis had put them in a difficult, but likely temporary bad place. And this is referred to as liquidity problems. So the Fed steps in to kind of do a temporary fix. They are not giving loans, or they're not really supposed to give loans, where it looks like this institution is already headed down the hill, and it's, they're headed towards bankruptcy. They're not going to be able to pay the loan back. And so the Federal Reserve does not lend to institutions that are what we call insolvent. But long story short, the Federal Reserve is here to act in a crisis, get money out, get the crisis under control, and get as many institutions, banks to the other side of the crisis functioning and to avoid bank runs. Since the early 20th century, the Fed's role has expanded considerably. In 1971, President Richard Nixon's administration ended the U.S. dollar's convertibility to gold. We must protect the position of the American dollar as a pillar of monetary stability around the world. In the past seven years, there's been an average of one international monetary crisis every year. Now, who gains from these crises? The gainers are the international money speculators. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. With that, the Fed became even more important in controlling the dollar's value. In fact, dollar devaluations and wage price freezes were central to Nixon's response to that decade's combination of slow economic growth and rising inflation, or what we know as stagflation. Yet U.S. consumers and workers continued to struggle for years, well into Gerald Ford's presidency. 
And I must say to you that the state of the union is not good. Millions of Americans are out of work. Recession and inflation are eroding the money of millions more. Prices are too high and sales are too slow. So in 1977, Congress amended the Federal Reserve Act to boost transparency and accountability, as well as clarify the central bank's objectives. With that, the Fed officially had its dual mandate to promote maximum sustainable employment and ensure price stability. So I want to start with emphasizing how important and how unusual the dual mandate was, especially when Congress put it in place. Central banks across the world, all of them had, well, they all have this lender of last resort role, but they all had a responsibility for stable prices. And that just means keeping inflation in check. The Federal Reserve is unique among many central banks in that the Federal Reserve is also supposed to take actions that get us to maximum employment. I think one of the things that's fascinating, and really as I learned about this, I found it fascinating, is that the maximum employment, also often called full employment, mandate came out of the civil rights movement. So we know a lot about the March on Washington, Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, J.R. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. And it's important to remember the March on Washington was a march for jobs and freedom. Much of the civil rights movement was about economic justice. In, a, in addition to dealing with the discrimination, the racism that had been rampant in the United States uh, for many, you know, hundreds of years. So economic justice was important. The idea that every person who wanted to work could work and the vision from the civil rights movement was not just a job. It was a job that was a good job. You could support a family. You could have, you know, stability. So that came out um, of the civil rights movement after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. His wife, Coretta Scott King, carried it to the finish line. And in 1978, so the Federal Reserve Act had been amended. She was there at the signing of what's called the Humphrey Hawkins Act, and an important feature of that, it affirmed this full employment mandate, and it said the chair of the Federal Reserve has to come and report to Congress, both in the House and the Senate, twice a year. So there, there was a desire to have an accountability, like you're going to have to come and answer our questions, make sure you're doing your job, and that's carried on to this day. Now, I will say the Federal Reserve has had a very complicated relationship with its full employment mandate. You can see in transcripts of meetings of the Federal Reserve after the mandate was put in place, openly deriding the full employment mandate, like making fun of, well, what do they want? Zero percent unemployment? That's not possible. And in fact, the Federal Reserve officials at that time 
and this really carries through to today, they make the argument that if we achieve stable prices and to achieve that, we'll get maximum employment. Like that'll be the best we can do on the employment side because there's a belief and some models, which frankly don't work very well anymore today, that says if you push unemployment down low enough, inflation's gonna get out of control. As Claudia notes, the relationship between inflation and employment seems to be changing. Historically, the natural unemployment rate was between about 3.5 and 4.5%. When unemployment fell too low, the economy would heat up and inflation would rise, a dynamic captured by the so-called Phillips curve. Yet lately, that relationship has seemed to be broken. Unemployment has fallen about three full points since 2014, but inflation is no higher today than it was five years ago. Uh, Given these facts, do you think it's possible that the Fed's estimates of the lowest sustainable unemployment rate may have been too high? Absolutely. (laughs) Before the pandemic, the U.S. was essentially at full employment, with a jobless rate of about 3.7 percent. Yet inflation barely budged. I've been seeing lately that economists are increasingly worried that the idea of a Phillips curve that links unemployment and inflation is no longer describing what is happening in today's economy. Have you been considering on that? Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, very much so. We spend a a great deal of time on that. The the connection between um, slack in the economy or the level of of unemployment and inflation was very strong if you go back 50 years, and it's gotten weaker and weaker and weaker to the point where it's it's a faint heartbeat that you can hear now. Claudia, let's talk about the models. The Phillips curve hasn't seemed to be working as it used to. What changes explain this development? And do you think the Fed has read them accurately? So as with any complex phenomenon, there's going to be a lot of different explanations floated around. And so why it's so important is this relationship. So if you push unemployment down low enough lower than kind of what we think is, quote unquote, its natural rate, then inflation is going to pick up and like it could really spiral out of control. And we'd seen that again in the late 70s, early 80s. That became like the North Star for monetary policy. And what happened is after the Great Recession, that relationship really broke down. What they refer to as the Phillips curve got really flat Like there wasn't this inverse relationship and it's like, oh, wow, like now what are we supposed to use to do policy? I personally, and there are others, like this isn't just me, for decades, interest rates have been falling. And the Fed's primary tool to kind of even out the bumps and wiggles in the economy is to raise and lower interest rates. And if interest rates aren't the reason that firms aren't investing, that you know, families aren't taking loans out to send their kids to college, well, then the Fed can lower interest rates all it wants to and isn't going to do a lot. And you know, there is the thing, the federal funds rate, which is their primary tool to kind of you know, push on interest rates a little bit, it is very low. It went to zero uh, early on in the Great Recession. It went to zero very early on in the current crisis. Now, the Fed has other tools to kind of tweak around with interest rates. But frankly, it's like they really don't matter. And it's not the Fed's fault 
for like a lot of reasons, big structural reasons, the interest rate's just been falling over time. There's probably a lot of things that are going on in the economy that have like really weakened that relationship. I mean, it's kind of sort of there, depends which data points you squint at. And we don't know exactly why it weakened so much, which means it could come back. And it really matters for the way central bankers think about stabilizing the economy. Now, the situation has been complicated further by the COVID-19 pandemic, which has raised the specter of a deep global recession. It is against this backdrop that Fed Chair Jerome Powell announced the Fed's policy shift. Claudia, let's move on to the Fed's recently announced policy shift, especially this new, more accommodative approach to inflation. Some economists remain convinced that this is a highly risky move. Do you agree? I don't think it's risky. So I disagree, but I understand the argument, right? And I think it's worth spelling it out. So what the Federal Reserve told us is in this expansion, in any expansion, recovery going forward, that they are going to let it run longer than they would have before. They're not going to get as worried about inflation. They're going to let it go up above their prior target, which was 2%. Not too much, but but they were very explicit in they're not going to pull back. They're not going to take their foot off the accelerator as like soon as they did in the Great Recession. So now, so the concern with that is it could get out of control. Like in the 1970s, we really tried to push down unemployment. And what we got rewarded with is a lot of inflation. And the Fed really had to step in. Fed Chair Volcker had to really hit the brakes. And it caused a lot. I mean, it caused a massive recession. And so the Fed doesn't want to have that happen again. Market watchers, people out in the world don't want to have that happen again. So that's the concern. Now, it has to be balanced with there was a big cause to the Fed being very worried about inflation after the Great Recession. That cost was a slower recovery, with minority communities in particular often being left out of the labor force. The Fed's new policy framework aims to avoid that outcome, and in fact, it may well make a big difference for the communities that suffered the most the last time around. Claudia, could the Fed's decision to prioritize job growth above price stability make a difference in the long term, particularly for groups that have traditionally struggled with higher unemployment rates? Absolutely. And the Fed was explicit in the framework review, in the conversations about it, that they are doing this because they recognize that the people who live in low and moderate income communities, the people who have been on the sidelines of the labor market, they need this. They need the Fed to take the full employment mandate seriously. So the Federal Reserve has put on the table two different ways that they want to help these communities. And they're often people of color, communities of color. One, this idea of letting the economy run. Let them unemployment to go down. Don't get freaked out about potential future unemployment. In these communities, among these workers, it is so important. The black unemployment rate is like always 
nearly twice the white unemployment rate. Black workers really benefit when we let the unemployment rate, the national unemployment rate, go down. The other thing that's important is just the fact that they're talking about black workers, Hispanic, like this is such a huge change. Like they never talked about this. It was very indirect. So to me, those are words. I think they need to back it up with more actions, but I don't want to understate like how amazing this is. And it's it's heartening to see them point their resources at it because it's a big problem. But despite these gains, discussions of long-term structural trends may not feel particularly urgent at the moment, given that the U.S. is currently facing a deep and protracted recession. Many hoped that the Fed's recent announcement would include concrete tools or programs intended to prevent economic disaster now. After all, the programs it has introduced so far haven't all been home runs. We're going to uh, kick things off this hour uh, by uh, talking about uh, relief efforts for small businesses in America. The attention so far has been focused on the government's $350 billion paycheck protection program. Meantime, the Federal Reserve has its own potentially much larger program in the works, but it's facing some unique obstacles before it can get off the ground. This is a program that the Federal Reserve is launching to target those companies that are too big to have accessed the Paycheck Protection Program. Federal Reserve expanding its municipal lending facility is coming after some criticism from counties and cities that were left out of the original terms. Claudia, the Fed's broad policy shift is fairly forward-looking, but how is the Fed doing at addressing the challenges the U.S. faces right now? Could you tell us a bit about the mistakes made with the Main Street Lending Program and the Municipal Liquidity Facility? So this comes down to a definition of what the Fed is expected to do, what it can do, with the current authorities that it has from Congress. In March of this year, total gold stars to the Fed. They went in and stabilized every financial market imaginable. That's a large reason why the stock market recovered, because it was like, oh, wow, the Fed's got this. In March, Congress passed the CARES Act. This is a huge relief package, over $2 trillion. Part of that package, Congress instructed the Federal Reserve to stand up two new lending facilities. So... They said, you're going to have lending facilities for middle-sized businesses and for municipalities. But the Fed is adamant those facilities were always meant as lender of last resort if the private market isn't functioning and they were going to lend to institutions, to businesses, to municipalities that were good for it. Like, they could pay it back. The problem is, like, you look out in the world and there's a lot of need like businesses are failing, they could really use a loan. State and local governments are facing an un, like just massive budget shortfalls. Now, it's true that like if the Fed made these loans, it's not clear that like the state of Michigan or the city of Flint is going to be able to pay it back in 3 years. So the Fed has said we're not stepping in to do this. We're not going to help communities. We're not going to help middle-sized businesses that are really failing. They need money from Congress. Congress should do that. So what should the Fed be doing that it's not? I think the Fed should go to Congress and be very explicit that they need more authority. 
As Claudia notes, responsibility for supporting the U.S. economy doesn't lie with the Fed alone. Congress did take early action, appropriating a whopping $2.2 trillion for programs aimed at supporting jobs, businesses, and households during the COVID-19 crisis. Those in favor say aye. Aye. Those opposed say no. No. The ayes have it. Congressional leaders appear to have reached agreement on what is by far the biggest stimulus package in U.S. history. Very important day. I'll sign the single biggest economic relief package in American history, and I must say, or any other package, by the way. It's good news for the doctors and nurses in emergency rooms around the country who are waiting for more masks and more funding. It's good news for families all across America. At last, we have a deal. Since then, however, support has lapsed. Unemployed workers have been able to collect an additional $600 a week under the CARES Act. That benefit runs out at the end of July, and now Congress is debating whether to extend it. So let's get into fiscal policy. How do you rate Congress's initial stimulus package? Yeah, so the initial package in March, the CARES Act, like A+. Like, I did not sleep until it passed the Senate. Like, it was so good. I don't even think they totally understood how good it was. And it was so fast. It was so big. It was so broad. I mean, it was like every lesson that they needed to learn from the Great Recession. But then as months went on and it became increasingly clear, especially this summer, that more money was not coming. And I truly believe we need trillions of dollars. And it is not coming. And so... I don't know. I mean, on a good day, maybe I'll give them a D for like where we are now. And that like is just unacceptable. And I just I I know why it's happening. Like they're worried about debt becoming too high. And oh, my gosh, inflation could get out of control in financial markets. But it's like, frankly, we are going to have such a mess from the fact that they are sitting on their hands and not sending out money. You've been very vocal about the need to reinstate lapsed programs, including the $600 per week and additional unemployment benefits. How seriously should we take concerns about the cost of such programs? They're worth every penny of it. What we know from the Great Recession is when Congress stepped away, when Congress actually started to cut, it really slowed down the recovery and it really hurt people, and in particular, these low and moderate income people and communities. Like the expansion was very long, but it was very slow and painful. Congress cannot make this mistake again. And it is like so hard for me to watch this because it is way too early for them to step away. We can have debates about what the policy should be, but like trillions of dollars should be going into the economy right now uh, from Congress. And It's not happening. Senator Ted Cruz gave it a hell no, not just a no. Senator Rand Paul said it was insane. Republicans publicly airing their grievances about critical parts of a new stimulus bill. We have spent more than enough money. We cannot spend our way out of this. We've spent now nearly $3 trillion. We've spent 15% of our total national debt. Enough is enough is enough. I'm very upset with my colleagues. They went eight years. They should apologize now to President Obama for complaining that he was spending and borrowing too much. He was a piker compared to their borrowing that they're doing now. The U.S. debt is now equal to our economy, GDP, right? We have never seen a debt to GDP ratio of one since World War II. And 
this this makes people really worried. Now, my response to that is the cost of servicing the debt. So like paying our interest, you know, as we go along, it is at historic lows. Interest rates are so low. So don't look at the levels. Look at what you got to pay every month. Now, the people who want to push back on me would say, well, but interest rates could go up. Maybe the global economy is not going to want to buy U.S. treasuries. And then then we're going to really have to pay a lot and we're going to have this mountain of debt. And I'm like, no, no, no. There is a huge demand for U.S. treasuries. The United States is considered the most safe asset in the entire world. We have earned that by being the most dynamic economy in the world for a very long time. If the United States trashes the economy, well, guess what? They're not going to want to come and buy U.S. treasuries. They'll go buy treasuries issued by the European Central Bank, or not treasuries, but their debt. Then we got a really big problem. So, like, I agree the big problem in the end could be you know, interest rates, what the U.S. government has to pay to borrow, they go really high. But I think the only way we get there is if we trash our economy right now. And the way to avoid that train wreck is for Congress to send out money and the Federal Reserve to do more. As Claudia says, the money isn't going out and there doesn't seem to be a clear path forward to approve further fiscal stimulus before the November presidential election. The Senate failed to advance the Republicans' targeted COVID relief bill in a vote that closed just moments ago. There were 52 yeas, 47 nays, and 60 yes votes were needed. This essentially sends Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and the Republicans back to the drawing board. They had hoped to pass this and advance the bill and at least get approval in the Senate and challenge House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to take it up in the House or meet them at the negotiating table. This lack of support doesn't bode well for the U.S. recovery or for American families. It's going to be a long slog. We saw some real improvement since the CARES Act started pushing money into the economy back in April and May, and we saw the unemployment rate come down. I mean, frankly, faster than I had expected. But when you go back and you look at how much money Congress put in the pockets of families, unemployed, small businesses, and you can see it in the numbers, like how much it did. And we've seen now since these programs have winded down, the improvements are slowing. Like this is not the time to be stalling out in the recovery. We are in a big hole. So that's what the lack of relief means. It means that we are counting on the economy to heal itself. To, for workers to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We will get there. We did after the Great Recession, but it's like, why? Congress is the institution, the only institution in the country that can just send out money. And they're being, you know, penny wise, pound foolish. And it is really heartbreaking to watch this. Claudia, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. This is an important conversation. I really appreciate the chance to have that conversation with you. That was Claudia Sam, the Director of Macroeconomic Policy at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.